We're going to be continuing our teaching series, Seven Churches, A Call to Repentance and Reformation, in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. Last Sunday, Pastor Cameron unpacked Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus. It was a doctrinally sound, busy church, uh, busy with the things of the Lord and the gospel and evangelism and all of these uh, wonderful ministry opportunities, but over time it had grown cold in its love for Christ. If it refused to repent and reform, to return to the earlier days when it loved Christ rightly, Christ would remove its lampstand, which means that He would close it down, and that body would cease to exist as a local expression in that community. Those Christians would essentially be scattered. And the great question that Cameron ended with was, did they actually heed his warning? Did they repent and reform? Well, since there are no churches in Ephesus today, I think not. And in fact, there is no Ephesus today. The entire city is nothing but rubble and ruins So we don't know how long the church, you know, if the church actually repented for a while and did the right thing, uh, but ultimately it is gone, so I, I would imagine it did not hold the line there. In the next section, we are going to look at Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna, just by way of background, Smyrna was located about 40 miles north of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea. It was on that circular trade route that I've mentioned in past sermons. It was also um, self-governing like Ephesus. Um, It was thoroughly Roman, but it didn't have Roman officials there making sure that it would stay Roman, and it didn't have the Roman influence on the government. It governed in such a way that Rome approved of, and so Rome kind of left it alone, just as with Ephesus. And Smyrna was known for its harbors. It was known for its commerce. It was known for its marketplaces. It had a massive... Um, Agora or Agora marketplace, kind of like a mall. And historians tell us that it was the most beautiful city in Asia Minor because it basically stretched from a bay all the way up into rolling hills, rolling foothills. So it was just a, a, a gorgeous, gorgeous city. And today it is called Izmir. And Izmir is the second most populated city in Turkey. So it's still there in a sense. One of Smyrna's foothills was covered in temples honoring various Greco-Roman gods. There was a temple to Zeus, a temple to Apollo, a temple to Aphrodite, and there was a, a temple to Sibyl. There were temples there, constructed there, that also honored the Caesars and the actual city of Rome. Uh, There was even a a temple that was constructed that honored the legendary author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer, uh, who was allegedly born there in Smyrna sometime before uh, John's day. And the church at Smyrna may have been planted by the church at Ephesus, Or it may have been planted by the Apostle Paul during his third missionary journey since he went through that region. We don't know for sure 
how the church came to exist there. We know that it was by the Holy Spirit, but we don't know who the human instruments were in the planting of it. But there was a church there. And of the seven letters to the seven churches in these first three chapters of Revelation, this one is the only one that contains no corrections, no radical call to repentance or reformation. It has none of that. It is completely unlike the other letters in that sense. And this is because the church at Smyrna was consistently faithful and not lacking in any area as the others were. It was doctrinally sound. It was um, intolerant of false teachers, false apostles. It was you know, thoroughly committed to the gospel, just as Ephesus was. But it loved Christ rightly and holistically. It was devoted to Him, and I would say fully devoted to Him, not only in deed, as Ephesus was, but in heart. Smyrna was a, a model church. And because of this, it suffered greatly at the hands of persecutors. Would you please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2? We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11 this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Well, let's go ahead and pick it up at verse 8. That's where we left off last Sunday. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church at, in Smyrna write... The words of the first and last who died and came to life. Stop right there. So we see that this letter, it begins with a simple greeting to this church. And who is the greeting from? It is from the first and the last who died and came to life. Well, this is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He is the eternal Son of God who is first and last, in other words, has no beginning and no end. He's eternal. And he is the Son of Man who died on the cross, came to life, and lives forevermore. Christ addresses his letter to the, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, which is interesting. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but angel is angeloi in Greek, and it can also be translated as not only angel, but as a messenger. And we see that in passages like Luke chapter 7, verse 24, and James chapter 2, verse 25. And this seems to be the meaning here. In other words, this letter is not literally being addressed to a literal angelic being, but to a messenger for this church. And I think the messenger of this church was probably one of the elders of this church, if it had multiple elders, or it was a pastor of this church or something to that effect. So the angel of the church in Smyrna is probably the pastor or elder of this church. That's who it's addressed to, and it's coming from Christ himself. If you have a red-letter Bible, you can see that clearly. Now we can move to verse 9. We've gotten the greeting behind us. Verse 9, here's where the meat comes in. Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty. But notice the parenthetical. But you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Wow. So Christ begins here, after greeting this church, he, he begins by describing how this church in Smyrna was suffering. 
This is how he opens his letter. I recognize your suffering is what he is telling them. And he literally identifies three causes for it that are listed here. And I want to I look at each one of them. I hope you're ready. Number one, the first cause of their suffering was tribulation. That's the first in the list here. The word tribulation appears five times in Revelation. Once in chapter 1, three times in chapter 2, and once in chapter 7. And the Greek noun that is used here, uh, and, and actually each of these instances is thalipsis, and I identified that for you two weeks ago. It basically means affliction. When you see the word tribulation, think affliction. You could even think oppression because it can be translated into that English word as well. The question becomes, what was afflicting the church at Smyrna? Well, it wasn't a what, it was a who. It was the Romans. They were afflicting this church through persecution. In other words, their affliction was coming through being mistreated for following Jesus Christ, for being faithful to Jesus Christ. Now, the, the city, this particular city, in terms of being citywide and most of its citizens, was deeply devoted to the worship of the Caesar, of the emperor of Rome, Domitian at this time. And they even worshipped, the people of the city even worshipped the goddess who personified Rome. She was called the, the Dia Roma. During Domitian's reign, annual sacrifices were mandatory. Every citizen of Smyrna was required to participate in these worshipful sacrifices to him. Every one of them. Not one was removed from this. Nobody could avoid this. Not even the Jews. And refusing to, to make an annual sacrifice in worship of the Caesar was considered a capital offense. If a person just walking down the street walked by you and prompted you to say, and this happened all the time, if they prompted you to say, Caesar is Lord, you had to do it or you would suffer the brutal consequences. Imagine that. Imagine being a Christian there. In addition to this, the city was awash in paganism. The people fastidiously worship all the gods housed on the Pagos. That's that hill, that, that fancy hill where all the temples were built. The people fastidiously worship all of the gods housed on the Pagos. And they participated in every kind of perverted ritual and festival. And these things were citywide. We, we were all um, appalled by some of the festivals that that take place in some nearby cities, you know, San Francisco. And, 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 and what these people were doing in Smyrna made that look like Sunday school. And you know what? The Christians in Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, they avoided all of these things. The annual sacrifices, the feasts, the festivals, the declaring Caesar as Lord when prompted, they steered clear of all of that. 
They did not participate in any of it. They could not and would not participate in, this, in these various forms of idolatry, which totally made them out of sync with that culture. It made them stand out. And this, of course, led to all sorts of Roman persecution, including prosecution, incarceration, and even death. The execution of Antipas is a sobering reminder for how dangerous this area was for Christians. He lived in a nearby city, in the nearby city of Pergamum, and he was put to death for being faithful to Christ. We see that down in verse 13. So the Romans were brutally persecuting this church for not participating in all of those Roman festivities and, and, and idolatry. That's a reality that these Christians had to live with. That's the first cause of their suffering. The second cause of their suffering was, was poverty. You see it there in the text. The Greek word for poverty does not mean that they were poor folk. It means that they literally had nothing. Nothing. Not even sandals. MacArthur said they were destitute, barely surviving on whatever they could scrounge together. Now, it could be that these brothers and sisters in the Lord once owned businesses and, and properties and lots and lots of possessions, but these things were taken away from them by their Roman persecutors. Stripping Christians of their livelihood and belongings was very common in this day. In Ephesus, a a financial offering had to be made in honor of Caesar before you could exchange in commerce. I call it the Caesar tax. Now, it was different from the imperial tax in Matthew 22, 15 through 22, where Jesus declared, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. This Caesar tax was completely different than the imperial tax. The imperial tax paid for infrastructure and things like our taxes are supposed to pay for. The Caesar tax was completely different from this. The Caesar tax was about worship. You were making a financial gift to a demigod. Before you could sell, imagine being a Christian business owner, before you could sell your goods or wares, you had to pay this worship Caesar tax. And I'll tell you what, this put Christian business owners in a precarious situation. Paying the Caesar tax was an act of idolatry to them. But if they refused to pay the tax, you know, they couldn't sell their goods to Western merchants. They couldn't generate income to house and feed their families. And it was at about this time that Christians began to refer to the Caesar as the beast. And this was about the time where, um, the, and, and what happened was when you paid that Caesar tax, you, you received a mark on you that showed that you paid it so you could conduct commerce. And this is about the same time where Christians started, they, they, they literally, when somebody received that mark on their body because they paid that tax, they would call that the mark of the beast. You're familiar with that language in Revelation, aren't you? 
So Christians at this point were calling the Caesar the beast. And if you paid that tax, that worship tax, that Caesar tax, and you got that mark, you received the mark of the beast. It's a mistake to think that this is only going to happen in the future with some Antichrist figure. This was happening in John's day. Imagine what it must have been like when these Christians received this book and cracked it open and read in chapter 13, verse 16 and 17 about the mark of the beast. We're living that right now. This isn't coming. We're living it is what they were thinking. And I do believe it is coming in a sense as well. Faithful Christians refused to worship Caesar through paying the Caesar tax, and they were subsequently prevented from selling their goods, and they lost their businesses, and they became impoverished. And since Smyrna was only 40 miles away and nearly identical to Ephesus in Caesar worship and commerce, it's very likely that this Caesar tax was imposed upon the citizens in Smyrna, just as it had been in Ephesus. I think that Caesar tax is what led to the Christians' poverty. They just couldn't pay that to do business. And remember, this is a a city where commerce is the number one revenue stream. this This is the location in Asia Minor where east meets west. Everything on the eastern side of Smyrna was Asia. Everything on the, on the left and, left-hand side, uh, was the, on the western side, was essentially Rome and the Roman Empire and the modern world. And so all of the goods that were produced in Asia Minor and throughout Asia came through these port cities, came through these distribution centers and were sold to all of the people on the western side in Rome. And so if you were a Christian merchant and you were faithful, you wouldn't pay these taxes. You wouldn't pay the Caesar tax, and you would lose your business. How would they feed their families? Lord, it can't be so, but we need to trust the Lord, not in commerce, right? And that's what many did. Many did. That's what this church did. You can't say that about the other churches. This one did this. And I want you to take notice of the parenthetical statement near the The middle of verse 9. This is so important. Look at that detail. But you are rich. What do you mean we're rich? We don't have sandals. We don't have pita bread. We don't have anything. We don't have sustenance. We don't have food. We've lost it all for you. No, you are rich. You are rich. In fact, the people here that had nothing were the wealthiest of all the people in all these churches. They were wealthy. They were rich. You might say the church at Smyrna may have been financially poor, but it was spiritually rich according to Christ. So much so that it received praise here in this parenthetical. That's a statement of praise. I know you're financially poor. I know that you're having a hard time making ends meet, but you are rich Now, the church at Laodicea was the opposite. It was financially rich. It was prosperous and not in need, right? But it was spiritually wretched. It was pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Chapter 13, verse 17. You see, in God's economy, spiritual wealth is greater than financial wealth. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Matthew 16, 26. So they were impoverished because of the persecution, and yet Christ calls them rich. Wealthy, why? Because they loved Christ. They had Christ. Sometimes we, 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 don't, we really don't live our lives because we live in America. We have, we have so much and so much bounty and so much provision that we really don't realize how wealthy we are spiritually. Our, our spiritual concept of wealth gets blinded by the, you know, the physical concept of wealth. And sometimes when you have, it, it takes literally having all of these sorts of things removed to realize how truly wealthy you are. All of these things can serve as distractions. I mean, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth blinds people. Money is the root of all sorts of evil, and those who commit themselves to it suffer many pangs. It is far better in God's economy of things to be spiritually rich. And those who have Christ are spiritually rich. It's something we need to realize, people. So they had a poverty issue. Number three, the third cause of their suffering was slander. Slander means to defame someone or a group of people by spreading false, malicious rumors about them. Who was slandering the church in Smyrna? It was the Jewish community that also lived there. The Jews in Smyrna hated their Christian neighbors because they fiercely despised the gospel of Jesus Christ and anyone who claimed Christ to be the long-awaited Messiah. They spread nasty rumors. They poisoned the minds of the people and incited the local government against this church. That's how much they hate Christ. The Jews in Antioch, Iconium, and Thessalonica did the same thing to the Apostle Paul during his missionary journeys 40 to 50 years earlier. They got the cities in an uproar against this faithful apostle because they hate the gospel. Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts chapter 17. By opposing and maliciously slandering the church, the Jews thought they were serving God, right? John 16, 2. But Christ refused to even call them Jews here because true Jews have received new hearts by the Holy Spirit and they believe in Jesus. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Instead of calling them Jews, even though they were Jewish by descent, instead of calling them Jews, the Lord Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Wow. MacArthur again, he said, this is a chilling commentary on the apostasy of New Testament Judaism. Whatever lip service they still paid to the one true God was worthless after they rejected his son as Messiah. Their religion was every bit as opposed to God's truth as the emperor worship and paganism that dominated Smyrna and their synagogues as they were just as spiritually vacant as the temples littering the Pagas. 
By birth, they were Jews, but spiritually, they were blasphemous pagans and enemies of God. Boy, that'll put a damper on your Zionism, won't it? We, we, we need to realize that Israel, do we love Israel? Yes, but we're supposed to love other nations. We're supposed to love Palestinians. Israel is apostate. It is an enemy against its own God. Remember that. But that should never bring about anti-Semitism. Never. It should bring about prayer. But they are in a bad way with their God. They are. Remember that. In verse 10, we see three things. We see the prediction, the purpose, and the prize. Three Ps. I like to throw those out there once in a while. Not just peas, but other things. Number one, the prediction, verse 10a. Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Here Christ predicts that the church will soon suffer because of a wave of demonic persecution that was about to come upon them. You know, I think these... Believers were suffering persecution all the time, but this is a kind of a, a new wave of it that's coming that's going to be extra harsh. And some of these believers here would, would be arrested and they would be thrown into prison. Why? For being faithful to the Lord Jesus. I think the Jews were likely cooperating with the Romans to try to shut this church down. Let's go down there and arrest them all. Let's throw them all in jail. Jews were not opposed to partnering with their enemies because the Romans were allegedly their enemies, but they would partner with their, with their terrible enemies at times in certain situations. For example, in Acts 17.5, we see them partnering with wicked men of the rabble against Paul, Silas, and Jason. So the Jews would make compromises, partner with their enemies against a common enemy. And I think that's what was happening here. However, Christ tells us that the main culprit was not Jews nor Romans, but the devil. The devil is going to throw some of you in prison, into prison. It has always been the devil's plan to attack God's children and attempt to destroy their faith. This is what he does. This is what he attempts to do. And that is why one of his titles in Scripture is the accuser of our brethren or of our brothers, Revelation 12, 10. Now, the devil meant to, to harm these believers by incarcerating them. He, he means to destroy these believers in any way that he can, but Christ tells them not to fear. And in the next line, Christ describes the sovereign purpose behind it, which will actually benefit them. Boy, that's not something that we understand here in the good old U.S. of A. We don't see tribulation and suffering and struggle as something positive or that can produce positive results. We do everything we can to get out of it. Now, I'm not saying be a weird sociopath and sit there and pray for trouble because you'll find it. But you know, we have a wrong view of it here. We take pills to get rid of pain. We, you know, we take other meds to get rid of anxiety. We run for the hills when trouble comes. We do everything we can to avoid it. Yet Christ is going to tell them here plainly that there's a powerful sovereign purpose behind this for your good. 
And that's where we see the purpose. Number two, verse 10b. What does he say? That you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. The purpose for their suffering through persecution was the testing of their faith. It is imperative, imperative. I, I don't, I, can you think of another word that I could use to stress the importance of this? It is imperative that, that the faith of believers be regularly tested through various trials, through persecution, and through suffering. It is imperative that this happen with us. Why? Because the testing of faith produces perseverance, and perseverance contributes to maturation, making us mature. James 1, 3 and 4. The testing of our faith also confirms if our faith is real or not. It is the most powerful and potent barometer test on whether you have true saving faith or not. It really is. The most effective. Real faith, the kind that Christ gives as a as, as a, a gift that will never be taken away, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, will hold up under pressure. In other words, true faith, the faith that Christ gives, it will make it through pressure. It will hold up. It will make it through the test. It will pass the test. It will remain. It will endure. It will persevere. And it will grow in the midst of trials and suffering. And this is because Christ is the author and perfecter of real faith. He created it, He grants it, and He will make sure that it is made complete. Philippians 1.6 He even prays for the faith of His people so that their faith will not fail. Luke 22 verse 32 But, but false faith does not hold up under pressure. It does not remain, it does not endure, it does not persevere, it does not grow in the midst of trials and suffering. Instead, it, it dissipates, it disappears, it, it vanishes. People with false faith walk away from Christ and the church when trouble comes, especially persecution. MacArthur once again, he says, and this is, I believe, in your bulletin, he says, Hypocrites and charlatans don't stand up in the face of persecution. They run. Heretics and hirelings don't last long when the church is under fire. And those who make merchandise of the faith are forced to close up shop when the very name of God is outlawed. Persecution, and listen to this, this is so profound and yet so true. Persecution purges the church of false teachers, false gospels, and false professions of faith. That might be one of the greatest things I've ever seen MacArthur write. God uses persecution to purge the church. Now focus on the second half of verse 10b. Christ sovereignly limited the devil's attack to 10 days, right? Some say, well, that's not 10 literal days. It's some other kind of day. Take the text literally, please. It's 10 24-hour periods. 
And this was more than enough time for the Lord Jesus to accomplish some of His sanctifying purposes for this body of believers and more than enough time for Him to shame His adversaries as this church sticks together and stands firm. I'm reminded of the opening chapter of Job where the devil was roaming around the world looking for someone to devour. And maybe in this instance, Christ suggested that the devil target the church at Smyrna. Have you considered my servants in this city? There aren't many like them on earth. They are blameless and upright. A church who fears me and shuns evil. Persecute them, devil. Throw them into prison for ten days, and you will discover like you did with Job that they will not curse me, nor will they abandon me. The purpose was to test their faith, to purify their faith, to strengthen, to grow their faith, to authenticate their faith. Suffering has a purpose. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a little while. Let's look at number three, the prize. Verse 10c, Jesus says, he continues and says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Faithful in Greek is, is pistos. It means to, to keep believing, to keep trusting in Christ. If the Christians in Smyrna kept believing and trusting in Christ till the end, Christ would give them the crown of life. Those who prove the genuineness of their faith by remaining faithful to the Lord until they die will receive this very prize, the Stephanos Zoe, the crown of life. What is the crown of life? It is eternal life. Scripture affirms this truth over and over and over. Matthew 19, 28, Matthew 24, 13, Revelation 3, 21, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Over and over and over, it talks about getting all the way to the end and receiving the prize. And Scripture also teaches over and over and over that Christians will persevere till the end and receive this prize because they have been predestined to do so. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Bringing them all the way through. What a phenomenal passage. I love what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about the certainty of eternal life for those, uh, for those who believe in chapter 17 of this confession, in paragraph 1, it says, They whom God has accepted in His beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. What a statement. Based on Scripture. And yet, this certainty... This reality of perseverance and making it all the way across the finish line, it does not diminish or negate the Christian's responsibility to stand firm, 
Don't be a fatalist. You must stand firm, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. You must fight the good fight of faith, 1 Tim 6, 12. You must press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3, 14. Christians are not automatons who sit back and let God take care of business. We are Holy Spirit possessed, Romans 8, 9. New creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, who stand, fight, and press on. And God has sovereignly ordained to use our standing, fighting, and pressing on to bring about the end result. For He works all things for the good of those who love Him. And are called according to His purposes. Romans 8.28, amen? And those who claim to believe but fall away when trouble comes are like bad soil in Jesus' parable in Matthew 13. The soil that just doesn't lead to a plant and fruit. In his first epistle, John tells us that those who go out from us, who, who leave Christ and the church, did not really belong to us in the first place. For if they truly belong to us, they would have remained with us. 1 John 2.19 Those who fall away, those who leave Christ and His church, shall not receive the crown of life. Only those who remain faithful to Christ till the end receive this grand and glorious prize. Well, Phil, you're attacking being saved by grace. No, I'm not, because that grace that saves you empowers you to stand, fight, to persevere. Don't go antinomian on me. That same grace that saves empowers us to live the Christian life. It empowered B to get through what she's going through, Tim back there, to get through this terrible week. It empowers us to move forward in the Holy Spirit. We're not stagnant. We're not robots. You don't sit back and say, sanctify me. Get into your Bible. God has ordained the tools and resources for these things. This prize is only received by those who make it all the way through because only those who are predestined to, those who are truly saved, those who have the Holy Spirit, those who are new creations, they're the only ones that will get all the way through it. Others will come and go. This happens. This is a reality. Do I like it? No. No, I want everyone to be saved. I do. And it shatters me when we see people come and go. That doesn't mean that they don't have an appointment with the Spirit in the future. But only those who persevere and make it to the end get the prize. Because they are the true ones. This is Jesus' promise to these Christians at Smyrna. Suffer even unto death. Stick with me even to death, and I will give you the crown of life. And it is Christ's promise to us. Now let's look at 11a. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Christ closes each of his seven letters with this phrase. Just appears and reappears seven times. It stresses the vital significance of what he has stated in these letters and throughout the entire book of Revelation. And it is the Holy Spirit who opens ears, who opens hearts, and who reveals truth. All truth is spiritually discerned through the Spirit. Christ exhorts these believers to hear or to listen to what the Holy Spirit says to the churches, thus emphasizing their responsibility to read not only His personalized letter to them here, but all of the letters to the other churches and the entire revelation, and also to heed His word. Christ isn't interested in us just reading and hearing. He wants us to obey and to do it, to live it out. Now we can move to 11b. It says, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What a, an interesting statement, closing statement to this church. Christ ends His letter with a comforting note. That's what it is. Persecution can cost believers a lot. It can damage our livelihood. It can rob us of our homes and possessions. It can sever families and destroy relationships. It can cost us our freedom and our health. In some cases, it can cost us our lives. But Christ promises that overcomers, true Christians, will not face the second death. Some say that the second death refers to annihilation. Now, this is completely inaccurate because the Bible does not teach nor promote the doctrine of annihilationism. Annihilation means that that person and their soul just cease to exist at some point. Well, that doesn't coincide with an eternal hell. Annihilationism is not true. I think Jehovah Witnesses and other groups teach it. It's false doctrine. The second death does not refer to that. It refers to conscious Eternal damnation in the lake of fire, a.k.a. hell. As it is written in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Prior to this, Christ stated that death and Hades are cast into this lake, a second death there. Until Christ returns, conquerors, true Christians, will have to endure suffering, will have to endure persecution, will have to endure physical death, which the Bible says for Christians is more like sleep. But there is no threat of this second death. It's been removed by Christ. And these lowly bodies of ours will not remain entombed in a casket, but will one day be made new, raised in imperishable glory to rule and to reign with our glorious King for a thousand years and beyond. What an inheritance we have. 
Let's close it up. My question to you this morning is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in His person and work for your salvation? You're probably thinking, well, you say this all the time, Phil. You know that we're all Christians. Uh, Hold on a second. I'm not convinced that everyone in this room is a Christian, and I know you. Yes, there are people in this room that make me wonder. And they are some of the most regular people at this church. Because guess what? I don't gauge whether somebody is saved or not based on their attendance. But based on how they live their lives outside of here. And how they speak and act and live. I will keep preaching this gospel in front of you till I have no breath. And I don't care. It is a mistake to assume that everyone in your congregation is actually saved. It's what I want. It's what I desire. Are you, do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Are you trusting in his person and work for your salvation? And I'll add, are you going through a trial? Are you suffering? You need to know that your suffering is not in vain. And I'm not just referring to persecution. I'm talking about any form of suffering. I'm talking about being over a doctor's hospital for two months. I'm talking about going through a heart attack. I'm talking about kidney stones. That's my curse. I wouldn't take what these other two have been going through in exchange for a kidney stone, but a kidney stone is no fun. Bruce has one like every Thursday. He's all, hi, brother, and then I know it just passed. (laughs) Poor guy. He gets really loud sometimes on the phone. I say, are you having a kidney stone right now? I think so, brother. Pray for me. How do you pray for that? Lord, help him pass the stone. Bruce has got so many stones, he's got the infinity stones. (laughs) Stupid Marvel joke. Are you suffering persecution at the hands of persecutors at work in your family? A dear sister here has been persecuted mightily through her Jehovah Witness family. Are you suffering through persecution? Are you suffering through some kind of health ailment? Do you have failing knees like my brother Dan, which makes it hard for him to get around? Are you suffering getting that job going and getting that, that revenue stream going? I mean, there's just a multitude of ways. There's a multitude of ways, ways that we suffer. Just you got to know that your suffering is not in vain. For Christians, there is no such thing as meaningless suffering. In fact, I think we own the market on this one. This is something that others do not understand. Only those in Christ understand this. For Christians, there is no such thing as meaningless suffering. The Lord is always working through suffering to refine us always working through suffering to to shape us. 
to chisel away that which is unpleasing to Him, to sharpen us for the building of His church. Christ is is using suffering to test you, to train you, to mature you, to sanctify you, to conform you to His glorious image. Romans 8.29 So my exhortation to you is stand firm. Stand on the rock, Christ. Fight the good fight of faith. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Fight for your faith. Fight for your spiritual life. Put more juice into that than for your physical life. Because your physical life is a vapor in light of eternity. I exhort you to to press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus. If you remain faithful to Christ till the end, He will give you the crown of life and you will not be hurt by this second death. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Look your suffering in the eyes and say, what is it that Christ wants to teach me and grow me through this? What is it that He wants me to learn? How does He want me to minister during this? And yet, if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus, if you are not trusting in His person and work, suffering is not meant to test not meant to train, not meant to mature, not meant to sanctify, not meant to conform you to Christ's beautiful image. It's not meant for any of those things. It's meant to convict you of your need for a Savior. Your body is messed up or things are happening to you and it's supposed to sound the alarm. And you must... Repent, turn away from your unbelief and trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is our only Savior. There is no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved, but the name of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. Believe that He lived for your righteousness, that He died on the cross to pay for your sins. Believe that He was buried in a tomb to settle your account. Believe that He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, victorious over Satan, that He defeated Him and crushed the serpent's head, victorious over death, victorious over hell. And this isn't a one-time deal. Keep repenting of your sin. Keep believing in Jesus until you die. Keep trusting in Him and you will receive the Stephanos Zoe, the crown of life. And that second death will not harm you. Maybe you're wondering, 
what happened with the church at Smyrna. How did it play out after they received this letter, after they read the letter in, in Revelation? What happened? Did these Christians persevere and remain faithful to the Lord Jesus? Did they get through that, that week-long suffering and all the other suffering that was heaped upon them? Yes, they did. And that church continued to persevere and remain faithful to Jesus through the centuries, even to our day. There are faithful Bible-believing Christians in modern-day Smyrna, Izmir, right now, as I speak. There aren't many, but there are some. The light of the glorious gospel still shines in that city. And these precious Brothers and sisters are suffering just absolute, fierce, terrible persecution today. It's not coming to them at the hands of Romans or Jews, but at the hands of Muslims. Pray that they continue to persevere and remain faithful to the Lord so that the light of the gospel will continue to shine in that dark evil part of the world. And may we follow their amazing example so that we can leave a similar legacy, one that honors and glorifies Christ for many, many generations. What a legacy they are leaving behind. May we, by God's grace, through the Holy Spirit, leave behind a similar legacy. Stay faithful.